Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. Anyone who listens to this program regularly knows that Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, has a pretty good grip on history. His knowledge of what has been truly inspires. Well, I'm going to ask him to look back in time and share with us the story of two men who not only lived history, but made some as well. Lincoln, where are we going today? Well, let's wander all over English and American <laughs> history in the mid-1600s. Uh, and, and I don't apologize for perhaps mentioning a bit of this before, because I will again another sure, time. Sure, sure. But uh, the, the impetus for the discussion today is I, I bought a book uh, a few days ago, and it traveled familiar ground for me, but it was a book I didn't expect to see in the United States. I've got it in front of me, and it's called John Winthrop, Oliver Cromwell, and the Land of Promise. Mm. Now, many of our listeners would at least be familiar with the name John Winthrop. He was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, again, around the middle of the 1600s. But most people wouldn't know that he was a contemporary of Oliver Cromwell, who, if they know about anything about him, know or should know that Oliver Cromwell was, as many historians have said, the most hated ruler in English history <laughs> or the most divisive figure. Right. And yet, I, I think he's somewhat gotten a bad reputation, but he certainly led out at, at a most pivotal time in English history that influenced American history. And this book, I think, does a great service by bringing the two together, because John Winthrop is quoted all the time in recent years by those who try to cast the United States as a Christian nation, mm-hmm. who are anxious to use... Uh, undeniable facts of, of U.S. history of the, of the colonies, in particular New England, to sort of cast a model that this was consciously a religious republic when it came about. And really, they're, they're, they're indulging in syllogistic reasoning, I think, because just because Massachusetts or, or another little uh, settlement in, the, in New England was of a consciously religious nature does not necessarily mean that, that after a war of... A rebellion against England, and then as they formed a new republic, that it was then self-consciously destined or intended to be what Oliver Cromwell set up in England. Hmm. And that's the crux of it. Mm-hmm. To go over a little bit of what I've shared before, in England, the Puritans, very familiar to people that study U.S. history, but they forget that they came from England and they were a bigger influence in England than here. Mm-hmm. The Puritans came into conflict with the Church of England, which they accused of going back to Rome. And in many ways, anyone that's gone into it, a church today of the Church of England or the Episcopal Church, you call it here, mm-hmm. uh, knows that it has much of the same character of worship as the Roman Catholic Church, very formal the liturgy and so on. And uh, the Puritans objected to that. They got into a fight with the king, who they thought was favoring uh, uh, neo-Romanism, and the upshot of it all, with political strife thrown in, was that there was a civil war, and the Puritans, with their emerging leader of the military, Oliver Cromwell, became victorious. They uh, captured the king. 
put him on trial, executed him, which was a first for Europe, really. Mm. Any time Kings of Die was in battle, not to be taken by the people and accused of crimes and their head lopped off. Mm. By the way, those that are listening should know, if you remember your history courses, until relatively recently, the Kings of Europe didn't just rule by power, which they had plenty of before the constitutional uh, constructs that say the English crown suffers today, you know, they're they're a constitutional monarch, they're more a figurehead than anything but back then they ruled by saying, and the church affirmed that they had a divine right to be a king or a queen Mm -hmm. that they represented not so much the church, but God himself Mm -hmm. and so to question the king was to question divine order Mm -hmm. and so the Puritans dared greatly to uh, capture the king and then to condemn him cut off his head and install Uh, Oliver Cromwell, not as king, but as a religious dictator, Lord Protector, they called him. Mm. And it was an interesting experiment in in a degree of religious enthusiasm, some little freedom for religious dissidents beyond the Puritans, uh, great persecution of Roman Catholics Mm. and a few other minorities, a great restriction on public life, just like the Taliban. They didn't want dancing and happy amusements and so on. Yes. Uh, it was somber and sober in England. And so when Oliver Cromwell died, uh, while he, he had clearly been put into power by a, a swell of uh, religious enthusiasm, by the time he died, about uh, seven years after his reign started, people had had enough and they invited the king's son back. And then it was wine, women and song. He was called the Merry Monarch. <laughs> but It's worth remembering, as this book points out, that here in America, there was a parallel development with Winthrop. He had run a very uh, tight ship of religious conformity. They had the great conflict with Anne Hutchinson, who was uh, an independent religious thinker, gathered a lot of people around her, and uh, she was condemned by a court and, as I remember, banished. They didn't cut off her head or anything, but uh, they were ready to do whatever it took to maintain a social and religious conformity in this mostly Puritan-administered uh, uh, regime in New England. Mm-hmm. And they were running in parallel with the thoughts of the Puritans in, in England, who had actually formed the government. But uh, I like what the author of this book says toward the end, and I'll see if I can find the quote. It's a long paragraph, but it's very good. He says this is the legacy. So he's looking at a legacy of Oliver Cromwell and uh, Uh, John Winthrop. And I should say, for those that don't remember, he was the one who famously said, as they were on their way to the new world, he said that they had come to erect a city set on a hill. Mm. And that's that's a quote still used, like the the, the U.S. is this this guidepost, moral guidepost for the world. And and I think uh, if you take that on its simplest level, that's fine, you know, to be an ideal and so on, but to think that structurally this was to be sort of a a new Israel is a little bit dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is the paragraph on legacies. He says, the godly, even when led by an inspired general and a devout army, could not turn a nation of humans into a kingdom of God. Mm. No amount of spiritual perfection or military force could bring that about. Instead, and he's talking about Cromwell here, Instead, Cromwell spoke for liberty of conscience and the worthiness of all men. The greatest legacy of the rule of the godly in England is that it failed. During the rest of the century, as political parties began to form in England, writers repeatedly warned against letting power accumulate in a permanently mobilized army. Sounds like what happened in the U.S. In the church, 
in big cities or anywhere else that it might run out of control. Toleration, difference of opinion, the idea that all should have a say in government rather than all live in a, as a single nation united before God. These were the products of Cromwell's career. And then he says in New England in 1649, John Winthrop died the same year as Charles I. The passing of the first generation of leaders brought with it a larger problem. Not enough of the faithful were coming to church with the same certainty as their parents that they had been saved. So there was a crisis in New England that says if New England was a land of promise, it was not because of its strength of faith or uniformity of practice. Just as the rule of saints failed in England, it proved impossible in New England. On both continents, extremists posed challenges to godly rulers, which forced the leaders to choose order over purity. On both continents, that left it to legislators to work out rules of government and to believers to seek their own salvation. Separation of church and state, right? Absolutely. Order over purity. I mean, that is a telling statement there that history has to offer for us. So how are we applying this? Are we applying this to today's world, Lincoln? Are we right back at the beginning of Cromwell? Are we right back at the beginning of John Winthrop in this nation? Well, we could be if we listen to to the so-called politically active religious conservatives. They've seen the need. They've seen the the problems, but they're seeking the same solution. What do they think they have differently? Why do they think that if Cromwell couldn't do it and Winthrop couldn't do it, why do they think they they can do it? What do we have that they don't have? Well, I don't think they're historically self-aware. That's Uh, my point. Okay. And my point is that since they were so close to those times, uh, the time of the American Revolution, they had a salutary lesson right behind them, Mm. even though people's inclination was still to sort of establish a godly kingdom. And I've just read another book called uh, American Insurgents. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a term you think of applied to the American Revolution, but yeah. the, the historian that wrote that book uh, emphasized insurgency, which curiously was a word that the British used at the time, hmm. that the colonists were insurgents tackling the established order. But that author brings something very interesting. He does connect it to the Puritan sensibility and also, as I've done myself, connects it very directly to the First Great Awakening, hmm. which was uh, in the uh, tradition, if you like, of, of Puritanism. But it, it took Jonathan Edwards, as well as an itinerant preacher from England, brought the revival with him. They went around to every little town. There were only two million people living in the 13 colonies. It's worth remembering that. Yes. So most towns heard these preachers calling for revival, but it was a personal spiritual renewal. Mm. They were not preaching anymore the need for the nation to rise up and to purge itself and to form a a social religious structure. And so what it did, it created a sort of a sense of godly uh, righteousness, which was easily mobilized in the, the revolution. But the goal was not to purge the nations, per se. It was that godly people with a great sense of justice and, of course, recognizing injustice would then take to arms and more readily sacrifice their lives for a cause. But it was not the cause of a religious nation anymore. So we're talking grassroots religion here is what they were after. Yes. And the author of American Insurgents makes a very good point. Jefferson and and Adams and Franklin, to just name a few of these uh, iconic figures that that led out and then formed the nation or or described the nation in the Declaration of Independence and then then defined it with the Constitution Mm -hmm. a few years later. You know, they were uh, businessmen. They were deists. 
you know, they were not battlefield people. Yeah. George Washington was the only one. And, and they, he points out that, that it clearly was more than them. They were the theorists. But what really made this thing work at the bottom level was simple people motivated by something more spiritual, more emotional. And what got them going was this religious sensibility. Mm. The sense of right and wrong, which had been sharpened by the religious revival in New England, uh, you know, only 20, like 20 years before yes. the uh, conflict began. At the very least, the parents of those that actually fought in the war, they had heard these preachers. They had been moved by it. The book gives many evidences from, from uh, local town records that really are quite a different nature from the uh, more academic, more... Uh, enlightenment sort of a language of the leaders themselves. Well, as always, history has so much to teach us if we but listen and read and Absolutely. study. Oh, my, my. Well, Lincoln, our time has flown by. Thank you so much for being with us today. And listener, I invite you to libertymagazine.org. As we do every week, check it out. You can subscribe to the magazine. Also, listen to this program. That's libertymagazine.org. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call Three Angels Broadcasting Network at 618-627-4651 or email us through our website at 3abn.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today. <laughs> <laughs>